Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. In places, my body has been worn away and left raw. But here, too, something has planted steep sides with what wants to grow. This program features the work of 2020 writer Ariane True. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Anastasia René, recorded in the Jack Straw Studio. What connects you most to your genre of writing? So my genre is poetry, and for me, I think a lot of it is how freely you can move. I don't know if that's what you find, but for me, it really feels like I can go any direction I want at any time, and even, like, through the layers of pages, not just on, like, it's not 2D. It can actually move 3D in a really cool way. Do you think the genre picked you, or did you pick it? I was thinking about this. And I don't remember, like, starting writing poetry. I just know that by, like, a certain time in middle school I had, I just got back from my mom all of my notebooks from that time. So wow. I'm, I'm stoked, obviously. I'm hoping to kind of figure out where that happened and why. Because mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't even read poetry for years. But I started writing it. So I have no idea what happened. So I guess it picked me then. That's probably what that means. That's, that's, I think that's what it means. Okay. It definitely picked you. What's been your biggest epiphany that you've experienced based on your work and your journey, big or small? I think that would be that you can, through words but and like art in general, but I think especially for me through poetry, you can put an experience that you had or are having into someone else's body and not, not like make them think about it, but you can really help them experience it in a way that is like safe and contained and structured. There have been like a couple of times where I have felt that, that has been happening and it's been really cool. Mm. I want to know more about your Jack Straw project. Can you share that with us? Yeah. So I'm writing a museum and the kind of impetus or the idea behind that is actually this like putting an experience into someone else's body sort of thing and making it very real and tangible. So the museum is about child sexual abuse some rough, heavy topics, and something that specifically people do not look and talk about. Like, we think that this probably happens to, like, a quarter of women. But we don't talk about it, even though it's, like, a quarter of the people you could be around at any given moment. So that's why it's a museum, because that's, like, that's the thing we know how to look at, and we know how to look at things that are in museums. We have, like, a script. There is a context and a knowledge people already have for that. So it's, like... Here's this thing you can't look at. I will put it in a form where you know how to look and know how to engage. And the other big thing I want to do with that is not like convey the experience of that itself, but of how that affects you for decades is the other big thing we don't talk about. Like it's not this thing that happens when you're a kid and then you're just fine. It's this thing that continues to have like mental health, physical health, spiritual and relationship repercussions for the rest of your life until you kind of move through all of them. And so the museum is kind of a way to help people get inside what it feels like to be dealing with those aftershocks for 10, 20, 30 years. How do you feel 
about being a writer that is writing about topics that have historically been shushed or hidden or glossed over. I feel a couple different ways. Some of it just feels kind of like, of course, because most things for me are things that have been glossed over. Like a lot of my experiences, a lot of my identities are things that have been glossed over. And like, I'm Native, I'm queer. Those have been systematically written out of history. So like, most things that I'm going to talk about are probably things that people don't talk about. And the other way I think about that is that like, every time I see something that I really care about and it's not talked about, When I do see it get talked about, I have so much hope and so much catharsis. And like oftentimes I will go on like a big writing spree for this project after even just like a clip in like a movie or a song or something as more things are starting to deal with this kind of stuff. And I'll just be like, oh, they are like, like I think I'm thinking about writing to all the other women and all the other people who've been dealing with this and kind of like, here, here is something like, here I see you, or here, I know other people may not understand this, I hope this helps them do that. It feels like I want to connect us. We don't have a way to connect, and that makes me really sad. Mm. So I want to help with that. What is on your, um, what's in your backpack or your nightstand or your coffee table or your floor? What are you reading right now? The question used to be, what's on your must-read list? Uh-huh. But um, I'm finding that most writers read a lot, and that was uh-huh. so overwhelming. So <laughs> you, you can answer that any way you choose. Cool. I did make my short list. My short list got longer the more I thought about it. <laughs> um, right now, I'm reading... I'm reading novels again, which is fun. I'm reading Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, which so much of why that book is amazing is because every character in it is a character. Like even like people who come in for like two paragraphs, you still get insight into their thoughts and their motives and why they're doing what they're doing. And I have never, in all of my years of training as a writer, it's only been as a poet, and no one has ever taught me anything about narrative structure or characters And so she just makes hundreds of characters, and I think that is, like, pure magic. And I am always reading Ross Gay over and over again. Catalog of Unabashed Gratitudes is one of my favorite things in the whole world. I just constantly, I'm like, oh, I need a poem. I'll just read Ross Gay again. Those are good ones. Is there anything from far back, a book that has influenced you? I think one of the books of poetry that has been most influential for me was Whereas by Lele Longsold, which came out a few years ago. It's not that old. But like that was the book that kind of cracked open what I thought I could do with my writing. And that book is absolutely why my book exists. Like I wouldn't have started playing with experimental forms if I hadn't seen what she could do. Mm. Speaking of what, you know, going back and what she can do and form, what keeps you writing in terms of practice and rituals? Do you have a lot of writing practices or writing rituals? So I feel like people always talk about writing practice in terms of time. And you get the advice all the time of write at the same time every day or like just spend 20 minutes every day. Mm -hmm. And I have never found any of that advice lands with me. And I think it's because there's nothing in my life has a consistent time except my dance rehearsals every week. Everything else changes. 
But what I do have is I have a lot of consistency and ritual around places that I write and the ways that I keep those. Like I am in a constant ritual when I'm in my house of keeping my writing space, my writing space. Like I have a desk and I have a chair and like the chair is not allowed to have anything on it unless I'm just like setting my coat down because I'm about to go out again. Mm. But the chair has to be totally clear. And so that ritual of always keeping that space open means anytime I want to write, it's there for me. Or if I know that I'm going to a writing event, like I always bring my writing notebook because I know that that is often a place where I get ideas. So it's never been about time for me. It's it's very place-based. Yeah, yours sounds more like rituals and less like practice. Yeah, I think so. Do you deal with writer's block at all? And if you do, how do you end it? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about that, actually, because this is such a writer's topic. We talk about it all the time. And I've never related with writer's block as an idea. I've never connected with it. And I kind of figured out what I think writer's block is two weeks ago when I was teaching some high schoolers. And I think that the problem with writer's block is not that you have nothing to say. It's that you don't think anything you have to say is good enough to put on paper. And like growing up, all my writing teachers were really awesome. And we started everything with free rights of just like, it doesn't matter what you put on the page. You just have to put words down for five minutes. And like, we actively practice writing things we didn't like. And they were like, write something that sucks. Write something that sucks terribly. So like, I'm not afraid to write something bad. So you're saying that the block is actually not, not being able to write. It's just being unsure about what we've written. Yeah, or feeling like whatever's in your head isn't okay to put down on paper. And like, whatever's in your head is definitely fine to put down on paper. Like, you don't, I don't know. Like when you got like a rusty faucet, you're not gonna fix the rusty faucet by never turning it on. <laughs> like you gotta clear out the rust. Now we'll hear a selection from Ariane's live reading. This first one is in the anthology. Watching them move, it takes no time to, to start again, the way blood flows, a cantilevered leg, a hip steady holds, the half breath between beats, instantaneous and again, Again, all possibilities once more motion, backwards a forward moving direction. This is just in the kitchen, a slick enough floor and doorways to push off against. Walls to change momentum, a low ceiling to catch and spin from a hand. It has been too long, always is too long. And yet, surely our blood moves between pulses, must still carry that last beat. Even in the spaces. I don't think we notice them. I don't think you see the parts of me that strobe with the lights out. You see movement and the breaths between. I work for that, not to see absence, instead what moves between bursts, what I don't have to push. Arms saucer above the spices, above the cutting boards. Pointed feet in thick house socks skip the rags on the floor, carry flexed calves between the stove and sink. Hips follow, fluid, florid. The back's still weak, so the next stays straight, but imagines grace. Tomorrow, one more set, one more lap, one more building back a body. 
Today, I can hear the space between heartbeats where the blood keeps going. I have called them lapses. In music, they are just rests. Diadromus. This fall, which is every fall, the salmon will return to the stream behind my house. They will wait in the sound until a high enough tide to make the trip up. Through the estuary, where crows and gulls pick the eyes out of carcasses, and through the culvert that, when I was small, I could fit through but feared. I did walk at once. Young feet unsure in the muck, pants rolled above the knees but still wet from the splash. My friend ahead of me, all pressure and shame. But I did make it through to where the salmon in the fall will wait to jump their first jump upstream in our creek. I made it back, too, to the beach where the gulls toss young crabs and chase each other. Last time I was there, I checked the culvert, and it seems small now, impossible for my body, only broken glass and spiders. When they make that jump, the salmon keep swimming up, pausing in pools. Their bodies move like current. You can almost see the water inside. Their bodies are half gone, some, in the missing chunks and peeling skin. Did you know that salmon don't eat on their way home? They metabolize their tissues like a tree keeping warm burning its branches. This whole time, they follow their nose. Memory of smell guides them home, though it's been years. When they are young and leaving the stream ocean-bound, they turn one last time to look home and let every scent of it wash through their bodies, I mean literally wash through their porous bodies, to remember. I moved home last year. I don't mean to Seattle. I mean to the neighborhood I grew up in. Have been avoiding, perhaps, at times. My city changes so fast, and memories overlay developments until I don't know what I'm seeing or when. But this part of town is the same as when I left. There are still so many old trees, tall or gnarled, even from my new window. Most of the houses are still houses somehow, and the roads are still wide and quiet. I can see the mountains from the ridge and from the same spot turn around and see the grocery store's high globe tower like a foam antenna ball stories above the parking lot, which is still a strip mall of businesses whose signs have watched me grow up, the same neon. For a while, I didn't think I could come home to here. But this is where we could afford, and something said come back, said rest a while, stay. I am a poor planner, but I trust my nose. Can sniff out home when the rivers look the same meeting the sea, these open streets. Looking up the same trees whose branches silhouette above the low roof lines. The freight trains, sonorous and uneven when they call up these same hills, catch up to my legs and their older, strong steps. Walking the same trails down the ravine to see the salmon return every fall, and finally this fall. And this is also from this place. This piece is in the anthology, this next one. It's called From the Ravine, Five Panels of Winter. The fog is rolled in just as high as the houses. You can see it hang from the rooftops, not like icicles, but like it brings the bottom of the sky level with the gutters. The rain starts from there. Only on our street, tucked into the ravine, does the mist reach up the slope into winter evenings. Standing by the road, you make a dragon out of moss from this view of a tree with all the right curves and strength to be a real dragon. Now make it okay that you can only see it from here, this angle, this exact spot on this side of your street. Maybe moss dragons don't breathe fire but fog, water that's losing its density. 
The woman at the post office two blocks away has known me since second grade, and when I run into her now, she's the only one who witnessed my childhood here and doesn't defend my father to me. And whether or not she knows why I ask her, don't tell him you've seen me. Should she ever see him again? She says, of course, and apologizes for whatever it was she saw happen. She doesn't say, there's a line behind me today. A tree freshly split down its center, I mean right down its center, faces our house. The inner wood wet from the recency of its cleaving and the water in the air, and looking like a broad strip of flat copper reaching two stories up the side of the slope just past our back fence. It gleams. In places, my body has been worn away and left raw. But here, too, something has planted steep sides with what wants to grow. Native plants that fruit and propagate and barely die back, breathe all winter. Someone has threaded a creek through the lowest points, where water wants to be and runs. I can let the mist that rises feed the fern's sturdy leaves and curled brown toes, and sleep at peace in the moss. Pandemic, even the nice days, we're inside. The forest drifts in through the window, rising up the slope from the narrow water, carving the low points lower. Once with you, a waiting bird we watched, waiting to see how close it would come. Now that trail is gated by implication, too many people too close, path sated and spilling over. I am hungry for the touch of ferns, for happenstance, and a lost world of coincidence I once felt standing all around me like a stand of trees in the city. So this piece is called Pandemic. While home is an outbreak, we pass a graveyard. This country has a way of forgetting the dead, of making me forget too. I read about other places where dead are visited and headstones washed, places where altars bring them home to us once a year or always. Growing up, I heard not to breathe passing graveyards. Or what? No one ever said. I've only stopped doing it this year. I don't know where my three gone grandparents are, not their remains. The fourth wants to be ash on the ocean. I have never been to the grave of someone I knew and we have no place in our homes for the dead. They find places to come anyway, out and around, Chloe chuckling at me on a bus over the university bridge, Kim on by my desk or driving out of town, Mark and Ed Nadine. We have no idea what to do with the bodies. They end up chemical in corners by the highway with the soft feet of caretakers, the held breath of passing children. It is most of a forgetting. We left the dead behind to come here. My people too. A decade on foot, guns and graves at our backs, graves at our feet, who visits them, I haven't yet. And the tall northern villagers who came on steamships, the bodies, flowers, songs, now an ocean away, becoming lands I have never walked, don't have the right names for, hope to tread and will tread with reverence, will breathe when I pass and will pause, will trust the hands I feel at my back, dozens, almost solid where they make contact. Of course we have broken how to be with death when the old earth of their bodies is too far to fall to, nowhere to kneel and keen. Sometimes, no names to call, or the wrong words to call them in. Losses we can't name in the language they happened. Today, I am scared for names I know. Loss I'm afraid to become fluent in. 
under which tender bodies, whose palms I have pressed to my lips, graves may open. But this week, after months of blue fingertips, there is just enough warmth in the damp spring to leave the window open a breath at night and wake up every morning when we do wake up to birdsong. Thank you so much. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Sassy Black, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2020 curator of this program is Anastasia Renee, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keene. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.